Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi there. My name's Celine, and I am an alcoholic. And I love having the ice broken so perfectly by all of you. Thank you very, very much. And I also would like to um, thank the committee for asking me to come, and this is definitely a privilege and an honor. And I want to thank everybody that's been part of setting up and part of the convention committee and all of you that, you know, took your time and your resources to come here today because you are being of service and you're helping to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that message very definitely has saved my life. Um, I... No, we all know how to drink, and I did my share, but just to make sure you know I qualify and I remember why I'm here, I'm going to just repeat a little bit of what it was like. And what it was like is I, um, my dad was a school teacher, my mom's a stay-at-home mom, and I have three siblings. So there wasn't always a lot of money in the house, very little at the end of the month. So we rarely entertained, and all of my family of origin, two sets of grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephew are all back in Minnesota and we're in California. So we didn't entertain that much, and uh, so it was like a kind of foreign thing when my parents struck up friendship with another teacher, and every Thanksgiving we alternated homes. They'd come to ours and we'd go to theirs, and they also had four children. And this one Thanksgiving when I'm 10 years old, uh, my dad made this little mixture of something that was in the kitchen, and he was serving it to the adults, and I was one at, you know, a taller age would go and drain all the cocktail glasses I could find. And um, so I kind of thought that might be something similar to that, only I was used to beer, not something that looked really pretty. So I went and I took a sip. And what I remember is from that first sip is what I tried to recreate with the, every consecutive sip. And that's how it made me feel, how when it went down, it just, all my blood vessels dilated and it had this sense of euphoria and I don't ever remember feeling different, but I know I liked how I felt when I took that drink. So I would keep going back into the kitchen, and what my dad had made were Manhattans. So by the time dinner came, fortunately, they separated the children from the adults, and my peas were all over everybody else's plates. And I was drunk for the first time. And that didn't really, you know, I didn't get in trouble for it or anything, but that was my first experience, and I loved it. Um, I never knew, but I came to realize later that I think that I'm a daughter of an alcoholic, and only my dad could say that of himself, but I strongly believe that, you know, he was. And so he was irritable, restless, and discontent a lot because we couldn't afford money for booze. And I understand that concept now. And we'd have just enough, he'd be fine, and he'd be mellow. But he would often um, get kind of brutal and... So I was really afraid of my dad, and what my dad said I kind of listened to, and one of the things as we were growing older, all girls in the house is, don't you dare get pregnant, and I better not have to go to the police station for you. So I remembered those things, and um, the people I hung out with, especially in high school, were of you know the caliber that they didn't drink or smoke, except before proms and when their parents were out of town, so I wasn't drinking on a very regular basis. But I can tell you how fast that accelerated because by the time I'm 18, I'm a daily closet drinker. I always drank in secret because I somehow knew that this was not a good thing to do. 
and I didn't like the effect that I saw on other people growing up. So I just hid it, and I, the more I hid it, the more afraid I got that you would find out what was going on and who I was. So I, you know, I hid it for a long, long, long time. Um, I was 21, I got married, I knew at the altar I was marrying the wrong man for the wrong reason, and then I stuck it out for about five years, and he really wanted to have kids, and I knew if I had kids, I'd have to give up drinking. And he was starting to catch on to my drinking anyway, so he had to go. And that was my solution to that problem. First person on either side of any family to have the big D, the divorce. So I went about pursuing my career. I had a great job. And um, through this job, I met a man. And we were he was my customer. And, I, I mean, I was in charge of the client relations for this company. And we got to know each other quite well. And... Um, very well after a while. And and so he lived in Los Angeles and I was in uh, Palo Alto. So eventually I moved down there and we, we ended up and we got married. And I got found a job, another great company, and just another level of drinker. They were really smooth drinkers and it was very, very acceptable in the 80s. And uh, the company I worked for was soup to nuts. I mean, it was full class all the way. So we had a lot of occasions to drink. But no one ever saw me have more than two drinks. Two glasses of white wine. But before and after I was there in the, you know, pantry, anywhere I could go, my time was consumed with how am I going to get it? Where am I going to drink it? And man, how am I going to get rid of these empties? Because those glass things really clanked way too much. But uh, right around 1980, um, I had this mysterious illness. And the doctors, they put me in UCLA Hospital. And they diagnosed me as having Guillain-Barre syndrome because... What happened, I was paralyzed from my fingertips to my elbows and from the tips of my toes to my hips. So after a long convalescence, I had to learn how to walk all over again and to, you know, write and do different things. And the doctor at that point, you know, was grilling everybody, how much do you drink, how much do you drink? Two glasses of wine. Even my husband copped that one, two glasses of wine. And so what I know now, because I've heard from these rooms and from, you know, podiums like this, that it was kind of that neurology whatever nerve damage due to alcohol. And the doctor kind of took me aside and he said, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't even smell a cork again. And I was definitely one that drank on the way home from the hospital, and this continued for a while. And then the company that I had worked for was downsizing, right-sizing. Anyway, I was the only manager left in my department and um, the only woman in a pretty all-male organization. And, boy, if you had those circumstances, you would drink too. You would really drink. So I... You know, I, I stuck it out, and all I wanted was my package from that company. Finally, November 1987, I got my package. And so the last thing I remember is putting my things in my car and going, you know what, my problems are over. I won't have to drink again. And that's the last thing I remember until January of 1988. Um, my sobriety date is January 30th, 1988. My sponsor is Linda Jeffers, and my home group is the WFS group in Bend, Oregon. And those three things have allowed me to remain sober a day at a time for a couple years now, and I'm so very, very grateful. But what happened on the night of January 29th, 1987, was I went to bed. We went to bed. My husband and I went to bed. During the middle of the night, he thought there was an earthquake, so he woke up, and there was no earthquake. Went back to bed. The earthquake happened again, and he turned over, and it was me. I was having um, seizures and convulsions, and by the time the paramedics got there, I was in a coma. So they took me to the hospital, and my husband had to call my parents and my sisters, 
And the neurologist said, you know, if she lives, she's going to be brain dead. There's just nothing there. And so they kind of kept the vigil for six days. And then my dad and my sister kind of got together and said, this is just a waste of money. She's never going to get better. And I think we ought to pull the plug. And my husband said, no, I don't think you're going to. And he sent them home. And um, I think they, my parents had been back home about two days, and I woke up. And I know now, to this day, I was definitely beyond human aid. There was no chance. I had thought about this and thought about us, and I had a glass of wine about this big, and I had poured it, and I had spilled all over the cupboard. And I tried to pick it up with my hands, and I was shaking so bad, I couldn't even get it down. And I knew then that I was going to die this way. I didn't know there was a way out. I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. All I heard about prior to 1988 was ship commercials. And every time one of them came out, it was an aversion therapy thing that they used to treat alcoholism. Whenever I heard that, I would change the station or distract my husband so, you know, he wouldn't get any big ideas. But, you know, my husband was told at the hospital she's dying of acute alcoholism. And he did not believe it. He went home and he tore that house apart. And all those bottles I thought I'd cleverly thrown away, they were concealed in luggage and boots. And he just was faced with this reality that he had no, you know, he just was like, he couldn't believe it. And, you know, I have to say, you know, part of it may have been his denial, but another part is I got real sneaky. I was a real clever, sneaky drunk. And um, after I got sober, I went to a car wash, and there was this little postcard, and it said, if you never appear sober, no one will ever know you're drunk. And that was the way it was for me. I had enough to maintain, you know, that everybody thought she's gaining a little weight, but she's, you know, upright. And the other thing that happened, too, is I was drinking more. I started gaining weight, and it was just I was just bloated, so I decided I better stop eating. So by the time I got to the, the hospital, I was also malnutrition, whatever that is. <laughs> I didn't have enough nutrients in my body to sustain my body anyway. So, you know, after my parents went home and I woke up, it was a long period, um, probably was in the hospital, just for maybe a week more. I had the trach, and then I got pneumonia from the trach. I remember coming home, and I just said, you know what? I don't think God wants me to drink anymore. Now, God and I had made a pact a long time ago. He kept keeping score on me, and I quit asking for things. So we had this friendly truce, and I don't know where that idea came from, but the thing that really shocks me to this day is I picked up the phone, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. There was someone on the other end of that phone. They directed me to a meeting. It happened to be a woman's meeting um, on Remit, and I didn't know where Remit was, and um, my car drove me right to it. I didn't take anybody with me, but I went into that meeting. And in that meeting, there were people laughing, and I'm just red beat, you know, just perspiring and a mess. And I sat in that room, and I heard this woman talking about um, vodka. Now, wine and vodka are my drinks of choice. At the end of my drinking, it was a gallon of wine or half gallon of vodka a day. And um, she was talking about the hardest part about her drinking was trying to get rid of the empties. And right away, my ears perked out, and I thought, now I might learn something here. And so I just stayed, and, I, and then I came home, and my husband said, well, how was it? I said, I think I'll go back next week. I had no idea he had schedules. I had no, no idea that there were many meetings. I just thought, this is where I'm going to be at this particular time next week. 
And I know that I have so many, so many uh, earth angels and regular angels in my life because I made it to the next week and I didn't drink. And all I could do was sit in this chair and just watch. And I think I was so scary, not very many people approached me. And I think, <laughs> I don't know what they thought, but it, when I got to be five years sober, they told me what they thought. But <clears throat> I could take it then. Um, but I just kept coming back. And then there was this girl, and she had six weeks more than me. And she said, Celine, you come sit here. She was a German, beautiful German. And uh, so I kept following Rosemary around. And then when Rosemary got a sponsor, I got a sponsor. I said, what is it? What did we do? I didn't know anything, but I was following Rosemary. And so I kept going to meetings, and then I found out there were more meetings. And then when I was about um, 65 days sober, I found out you gave out 30, 60, and 90-day chips. I hadn't gotten the 30 or 60, and I didn't know you could go back and ask for them. I didn't know anything. So I had to wait till I was 90 days sober, and that's when I picked up my first chip. And I was so, I couldn't believe it. I had gone not a day, but 90 days without a drink. And I think part of it, too, is I was still so physically um, disabled that, I don't know, that didn't really occur to me. So anyway, I got um, kept going to these meetings. I got the sponsor, and Belle was my sponsor. And all I know is that Belle would stand up at the podium and she'd say, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And she let out this great laugh. And I hadn't been joyous or free for a long time, so I said, that's the one for me. So I got Belle. And um, she knew a little bit of my story. So she was on hospitals and institutions, H&I. She got me into that service right away. And she took me to places where they had wet brains. So I could see some of the, you know, if you don't die, you could end up a wet brain. And that really made an impression on me. And I think that kept me going for a little bit longer. And, um, you know, we did conventions. We did meetings. We did H&I. And that's about all we did. And I didn't know there was more. And, boy, I'll tell you, I got to be a year sober. And by that time, I wanted my queen, my little tiara. Uh, I wanted rewards. I wanted all these pats on the back for doing something I should have been doing anyway, probably. And it wasn't forthcoming, and so I was a little disappointed. So right then, you know, here I am, an untreated alcoholic, haven't had a drink for a year, and then my life started going down the tubes fast. Because for me, the ism was still there. And the ism for me is I, self, me, I should manage, incredibly short memory, and I sponsor myself. So I was just heading for disaster. You know, my husband wasn't doing it right. He couldn't chew right. I mean, everything bothered me. We were on eggshells, and so I decided, I'm almost two years sober, and I said, I'm running away from home. And I did. And I thought I was going to do all these things while I was gone, all this freedom I was going to have. And instead, I don't know what happened. I do, but I don't. Um, I got incredibly quiet, and I said, you know what? Celine, he's not the problem. You are the problem. So at the end of 30 days, yeah, my husband was very, very smart. He got me a notebook, and he had a notebook, and we'd exchange notebooks at a meeting place because I wasn't going to talk to him. And don't you try and kiss me because I'm not coming home. You know, I was just that attitude of, um, you know, entitlement and, you know, you don't understand me one more time. So we did trade off, and I started emptying on these pages things that had been dammed up in my heart for a long time. And I could really see that I would never have been available for him. And I never had a, an opinion. 
Where do you want to go on vacation? I don't care. I don't know. All these things, I was not a participant in that relationship. So we got, you know, came back together, and about that time, too, I decided, you know, you need to be doing something different, and I didn't know what it was, because God forbid I should use a sponsor, right? And um, so I decided I better go to a step in a tradition meeting. So I went there, and I sat next to this girl. I'd never seen her before, and I'd been in an intergroup, and we needed a new representative for a meeting, so I talked to her about it, and she said, yes, yeah, she might entertain that idea of being an intergroup rep. And then um, I saw her every Tuesday. And every Tuesday, something about her had changed. And finally, I said, I couldn't stand anymore. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm working the steps. My sponsor has me doing a fourth step, and I'm listing things. And fast forward a couple weeks, what are you doing now? I just wrote a letter of amends to my mother that's been dead for five years. Wow, how did you do that? Well, my sponsor helped me. So finally, she said, Celine, why don't you just grab your big book and come over to my house? So I did, and um, we just started going through the big book, and then I thought, then she said, are, are you asking me to sponsor you? And I said, I don't know, am I? And she said, well, why don't you go talk to your other sponsor, and then, you know, we'll go from there. And that was like the first scary thing I did in Alcoholics Anonymous, because I didn't know how, I didn't know anything about this, but I went to Belle, and I said, you know, I really appreciate your time and everything you've done for me. And I'm going to be working with someone else. And I didn't know what to expect. I thought she'd curse me or damn me. or, But she just said, oh, I'm so glad, honey. You know, we all grow. We need different things at different times. So, you know, I hope we'll still see each other. And I said, oh, yeah. But what a relief that was. And then I could really dig in and start doing the step work that was required of this program. And, you know, it was like we went through the big book, starting from the very appendix, forward, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, on and on to the into action phase of the book. And um, so she'd asked me, too, well, what was your third step like? And I said it was on my knees, on the cement floor of this converted garage at Remit with Bell. And she said, how do you feel about that? And I said, fine, I cried. She said, okay, <laughs> well, we're just going to sit down, we'll just hold hands, we'll do the third step again. And then she started me on my fourth step with clear, concrete instructions, just as they're laid out in the big book. You know, um, who it is and the cause and affects my, that third column just eluded me. So she said, you know, call and ask for help because, you know, I will, we're not meant to do this on our own. That's why we have sponsors. We are guides. We rely on those that have been through it before us. And it is contained in the book, but I couldn't find all the little columns she was talking about. So she helped me a lot with that. And that was the first time I could see where, um, the problems were of my own making. You know, I stepped on someone else's toes and they retaliated. And then my feelings were hurt. And I found out, too, that it was never what happened to me in my life that was a problem. It was my reaction to what happened to me was the real problem. And I didn't know how to cope at all. I had not done anything sober since I was 18. And if you ask me, my kind of emotional growth had been stunted at that point. So here I was, you know, trying to trying to catch up. All those years, you know, 15 years, that I didn't know how to live life. And it was like a day at a time. And she broke it down and she made it so very simple for me. So time is going on. And um, one day I'm having a discussion with my sponsor and her husband. And something about God came up. And I said, well, AA, the groups of AA, that's my higher power. And we talked a little bit about it. And he said, um, you know, Celine, if you're having trouble with God, 
think of the trouble he's having with you. And I thought about that, and I thought about it, and then my sponsor kind of made it a little more gentle, and she said, you know, God has manners. He doesn't go where he's not invited. And, you know, I had thought, yeah, and then I found out in that word spiritual, there is the word ritual. And I had to start doing certain foreign things as a ritual so I could get to spirituality. And my whole problem, too, is that I thought I had to get good before I went to God. And this wasn't anything about that. So I'm about five years sober, and I'm sitting in a meeting. It's a book study meeting. And all of a sudden, it just grips me. I have a power, a power greater than myself of my own understanding. And it's personal to me. And we have this great thing. We can talk. We can. It's not this guy upstairs or this or that. I finally had like something that was just so personal to me. And I think then is when I really started to recover more spiritually. Because I'd gotten the physical thing down. And I was working on the emotional. And, you know, you can't help but when you're working with a sponsor, kind of grow up. And um, the one thing I didn't want to be, I thought I'd always been responsible as a child, as a young adult. And when I hit my 20s, all of a sudden, I don't want to be responsible for anything anymore. So I learned that I had to be responsible and accountable. And I have been so blessed in my sobriety because my sponsor and I have done just about any kind of service in Alcoholics Anonymous you can think of. Uh, We have done uh, hikes. She's a marathon hiker. And I was a little Sherpa while she was in training to go on the PCT trail. And we worked out in gyms together. We've gone to, you know sleepovers together, girl sleepovers, and she's just been such a blessing and a rock in my life. I can't even begin to tell you what I would have done without her. And um, God, I'm so grateful she's still in my life today. And, it, you know, it, the time just, time takes time, and time goes quick when you're, you're, you'll have a full life. And then came the news my husband was going to retire early, and I said, okay, but just get this, I don't do lunch and uh, he said, okay. So I tried working for a while while he was retired, and I'd come home. And, you know, that I just, I, I have to say I was not a very uh, grown-up about it because I had the honeydew list, and if they weren't all done when I got home, I felt a little bit cranky and out of sorts. And um, so then I kind of, you know, my sponsor said, well, do a balance sheet. You know, let's list the things, the reasons that you are working. What are the benefits? You know, what are the things that aren't so great? What would be the benefits of staying home? You know, what's, what sacrifices would you have to make as a person and as a couple to do that? So finally, I, you know, got some facts in front of me, and I didn't know how to talk to my husband about this. And so um, Linda would always say, what is it you're afraid of? And everything for me comes down to what is it I'm afraid of, real or imagined. So we listed the fears, and she said, okay, you my biggest fear was he'd say, no, you're working, or I'm divorcing you. That was the biggest fear. So I went to my husband, and he was like so overjoyed. And, you know, he was like, great. We can do this together, and it's manageable, and it's workable, and we can do that. So our passion was college football. So we go to Wisconsin, we go to North Carolina, we go up to Washington. Of course, UCLA and Stanford. Um, but we just had this passion, you know, fall, autumn, football, and it was, it was great. And I just have to thank so much um, women that I have sponsored because in passing this on to them, I learned more and more about me and what my fears were. And when they have a fear 
about talking to a loved one or a spouse, I could relate to myself. And that was really, that helped me grow a lot because it's, you know, and it's not your own personal experience. Sponsors have good ideas, but I thought, that's never going to fly in my house if I tell them that. So I know, you know, we know who we're dealing with sometimes and we need other outside help, like sponsors, sponsees. But I did learn how to have a conversation with my husband and it didn't have to be antagonistic or, or anything. And um, now I come, I was just, um, thinking of the landmarks. I mean, five year five was huge and the year 10 was huge. And when I got to be um, 11 years sober, I was asked to speak in Palm Springs. And it was over President's Weekend and we went as a group. We all kind of, if one of us spoke, People showed up and supported us. But this one weekend, it was a holiday weekend, and no one was really up for going down there. They all had plans. So I asked my husband if he would be with me, and he was just delighted. And I have to tell you, I didn't even ask my husband to come to an AA meeting with me till I was five years sober. And from then on, he always came, my home group, Thursday night book study, and would give me a cake. And this man, I, it talks about him in the book a little bit, too, in the family afterward, but he could not understand how a total group of strangers could help me in the way that he couldn't. Not all of his love, not all of his patience, nothing could make it better for me. And I remember the time, too, when I, I was going up to my sponsor's house, and I was told my husband, I'm going up to Linda's and I'm going to do some work. And he said, oh, great, that means I'm going to have to change. Because every time I'd come back, I'd have a new, you know, new way of approaching a, a situation, and he couldn't respond in the same way, so as a result, I have never seen a man change so much in my life as my husband. He was just, just a phenomenal what we've done with him. But anyway, <laughs> so he came with me, and you know, we, you know, they treated me very well, they treat us very well, and at the end of my speaking, you know, I, I went to him, and there was like something different about him. And I am so, I'm just, there was something in his eyes. And I could see. He was just so proud of me. You know, for carrying the message that you guys gave me to carry. And he just said, I don't know how you do that. How can you do that? And I just thought, you know, this is, this makes up maybe for some of the harms that I've caused him and some of the times I wasn't available and, yeah, my bitchy times or whatever, but... The look in his eyes is something that is just, what a gift that that was. And that was in February over um, the President's Weekend. And uh, we went in March. I was at my regular woman's Saturday morning meeting. And my husband always went to the gym and played basketball with the boys. And I came home, and he wasn't there yet. I don't know what's going on with him because his son was going to come, and they were going to do income taxes. And uh, then I went to the other door, and there was a note on the other door, and I called uh, one of the, his friends that he, he didn't play basketball with this guy, but called him and he, lady said, Celine, something happened to John. We're coming to get you and take you to the hospital. And I said, you have to tell me now what happened. And she said, Celine, John died. And I was like, oh my God. And there are out of that though are so very, very many miracles. This man was on loan for me for 23 years. He walked through this disease with me and into recovery with me. I got to be part of that process with another human being. And to me, boy, this works. This program really, really, really works. And um, and my sponsor's on a hike. 
geez, up in the mountains, I can't get hold of my sponsor. So the son and I went to the hospital with these people, and it was true. And I was just grateful that he died um, in a gym. There was medical personnel there right away. Someone could tell me what had happened. His friend that he'd been with since a fourth grade in Chicago was with him at the time. There are so many miracles surrounding that, that one of his children was there and got to go with me to the hospital. I mean, there were very many miracles. So I didn't, um, I didn't quite know what to do. So I called one family member, the sister that wanted to pull the plug, and, um, and I called the sponsee, and I called one of my sober sisters. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I took the videos back. I changed sheets. I didn't know what I was doing. And so before you knew it, here's my sponsee at the door with her husband. And come to find out, she had called my first grand sponsor, Jane White, and said, what do I do? She wants to be alone. And she said, don't you dare let that woman be alone. You get there right now. So before you knew it, I mean, I had a house full of people, and I needed them. I didn't know I needed them. The sister that said, do you want me to come? My first reaction was no. And I called her back and I said, yeah, could you come? And that was like the flip side of giving for me was taking and learning how to receive other people's help was just incredible. I mean, the women in Alcoholics Anonymous were incredible. And my, I'd heard before, you know, when the going gets tough, you want to be in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't want to be skating on the fringe. You know, and thanks to really good sponsorship and a willingness and a higher power that really has been pushing me all along, when this happened, I was in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, you know, I didn't have to drink that day. And then um, we had a bar in my house because we entertained and my husband's not alcoholic. And when my sister got there, the first thing I did is said, let's get rid of this stuff. And we did. We got rid of that. And um, then one day I went with one of my sponsees, and it was like, okay, now I, you know, now I got to work. Now I got to sell the house. Now I got to find a place to sleep. Let's get into action here. Boom, 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 boom. And you know, I was like, I was, I was terrible. I mean, I was, I was calm, but uh, calm out were really, but inside the wheels were going. I have to, I have to, must, must, must. So I went out with this sponsee and. Um, We've been looking at places, you know, and I was just appalled. I mean, I've got this great house, and my house payments are what you want for that? You know, it was just ridiculous, and I didn't know where I wanted to work in Los Angeles. So I came home, and it was like, that was the night I said, God, I don't know. I really don't know what you want. I'm at my wit's end. I'm doing everything I think I should be doing, and I don't know. So if you have an answer, could you please? You know, I really need, I need something. And I know that had there been a drop of booze in that night, in the house, that night, I could have lost my sobriety date. And, but there wasn't, because I made sure of that, and you know, now I'm not getting in my car, you know, I'm going to get the stuff anyway. Um, but anyway, I woke up the next morning, and the answer was Bend, Oregon. My grand, my first grand sponsor, Jane, had moved to Bend, Oregon two years before that. And I didn't know Jane well, I knew her through association. She'd always been really kind and everything. Um, but I just knew, Bend, Oregon. So I called her up and I said, I got to come. And she said, okay, um, come up, check it out. And I started looking and looking and um, with Jane at my side. And I made the arrangements. And I truly got a definition of God's will. Because God's will is, is sublime. There are no roadblocks or anything. 
My transition and move from Los Angeles to Bend was absolutely like flying on a red carpet. It was just, just beautiful. And I got into Bend and I started going to meetings. I was going to meetings every day, every day. And, um, learned how to be a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous one more time. And this time I knew it was my responsibility to stick out my hand and introduce myself and say I was new in town. And, uh, just so people would get to know me. That was part of my responsibility. You guys had taken care of me long enough, so I had to start extending myself. And um, they have great AA in Bend, Oregon, and I'm so glad I get to be a part of that. What time is it? Okay. I have 15 minutes. I don't want to get to the end before it's the end. You know, I have to come back. <laughs> so I started getting busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just I just knew that um, I couldn't expect it to be the same. We all have customs wherever we go. And, boy, was it hard, though, getting in those intergroup meetings and not putting in my two cents. I just made myself just kind of, you know, get the lay of the land first and then see what was going to happen. And um, it's just been incredible. I... The journey is just, it just takes on new proportions every day. And, you know, I love the theme of this conference. You know, it's about the miracles. And um, if you haven't heard it before, I hope you hear it sometime soon. It's don't leave before the miracle. And for me, a miracle, I looked it up one time, and I may have redefined it myself. I'm not sure. But from my understanding, a miracle is an ordinary circumstance that cannot be humanly understood. And for me, that means there's something greater it, around and to help make those miracles come true. Hmm. Now I have 30 minutes. Now where would you like me to go? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Timekeeper. <laughs> but one thing, too, it's about the, it is about the miracles. And I have to go back to, um, I've worked quite a few conferences, conventions, roundups, whatever, one wants to call them in whatever area. And this one time, um, my sponsor had changed sponsors, and she got a sponsor that had was in the Pacific Group. That's where that came from. And um, she was in the Pacific Group, and, and Debbie had a long list of conditions that she insisted on. They were not negotiable. And she outlined to them to my sponsor, boom, 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 boom. And one of the conditions was that you go to Pacific Group once a month, on a Wednesday night. So I'm always going everywhere with my sponsor anyway. So she said, could you, would you, you w- would you come? And then I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, okay. We had to leave the valley at 4.30 so we could meet people for dinner, so we could be in line at 6 o'clock for a meeting that starts at 8 o'clock. And you did that. You know, that was just the routine. And there was no seat saving. You know, you stood in line, and you got seated according to when you went in the door. And uh, it was a wonderful experience because you never knew who you were going to stand in line with. So you were always meeting and greeting new people. And it was a very popular meeting for out-of-towners, so you meet people from all over the world even. They would come, and this, I'd heard about Pacific Group for my first seven years of, of sobriety, and um, I heard a lot of things. And, <laughs> and I was not really quite anxious for this experience, but I went and I was just awed. And it just shows me that, you know, there is one, there's, there's something for everybody if we're willing. 
and they have a different procedure than I've ever seen before. Everybody has a commitment, a job that they do. I mean, they usually have on the on a Wednesday night 1,200 people. There's two 10-minute speakers, and the secretary, as you're going through the receiving line, shaking hands with them all, they'll nab you to be a 10-minute speaker, just prompt, you know, impromptu. And of course, they have their regular scheduled meeting uh, speaker. So you never knew when you were going through the line what was going to happen. And I've been 10-minute speaker at Pacific Group a couple times. And it's really interesting uh, that they had like 200 commitments there. And everybody fought for a job, wanted to have a job so that they could be, you know, part of this thing. And for me, anytime I want to be part of something, I have to get involved. Because if I just look on the edges, around the edges, I'll check the differences or why I don't deserve to come or why I'm better than that I don't belong there. So it was a really, really good learning experience for me. And our once a month became every week. And we just, we just did that for, till I moved away from Los Angeles. And her sponsor, Debbie Harris, and I want you to know that I've gotten their permission to use their last names from podiums, so I'm not breaking their anonymity. That's very important to me, but they are, in means of Alcoholics Anonymous, they are not anonymous. So anyway, uh, Debbie was chairman of the registration for the Southern Cal Convention. That one's a biggie. They alternate years, they go Bakersfield or San Diego. And she approached me and said, you know, could you be my co-chair on registration? Man, my ego went up, and I went, whoa, yeah, because she's saying she needs someone that's organized and detailed and a worker. And, you know, so I said, yeah. And as the time got closer and closer, and this commitment started evolving deeper and deeper, I was complaining to my sponsor one Wednesday night as we're standing in line. And uh, she said, Celine, what is it you're afraid of? And that made me mad, so I started crying. And um, I cried the whole way in line. I cried the whole meeting. And we have to drive all this way home. So now, by now, I'm really mad at her. And um, she ruined my makeup and everything. <laughs> she did it. And uh, so anyway, she said, Celine, you know what they are. Go home and write them down, and we'll discuss them in the morning. So I said, okay. So... You know, self-centeredness can just reappear in a flash for me, and these are all self-centered fears. Um, I'll get lost. Just get a map. I might have trouble with my car. She said, get a cell phone. I don't have anything to wear. I'm too fat. She said, go on a diet. You have time. (laughs) So for everything that I always went to her with, she would make sure that, you know, I would get out the nature of what my problem was, and together we would work up solutions. And they weren't always the solutions I wanted to hear, but I had a pretty good track record with Linda, and I knew that what she suggested was probably going to help me the most. And Linda sponsored, and she was very, very, and is still very busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's always told me, if you want what I have, you do what I do. We do not stay sober on yesterday's work. So it was up to me each day to find some way, somehow, to help another alcoholic. And those were really good words. And she had other things, too, about um, manners in Alcoholics Anonymous, how to show respect for where I am. And uh, she passed this on to all of us. And it's, you know, especially if you were going to speak or take a cake or anywhere be um, above the crowd level, we were to wear a dress or a skirt and always arrive 15 minutes early and stay late. Always, always go up and shake the hand and thank the speaker, whether I agreed with them or cared with what they said or not. 
And these are all just, you know, just rules of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there were no andas in her vocabulary. And I am strictly 100% alcoholic. I'm too afraid of authority. Drugs are illegal. And I might get caught by the police and there be my dad. So we didn't go the drug route. And, you know, so I'm, I don't have any experience with that. But she was just very specific. We're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the issues that pertain to my alcoholism. And I really appreciated that because when I walked into these doors, had that woman not been talking about vodka and her bottles, if she'd been talking about nicotine or, you know, fat or anything, I wouldn't, couldn't have related. Not wouldn't have, I could not have related and I would not have been back. And I might, with my track record, I would be very, very dead. And, um, <laughs> You want me, Dan? <laughs> so I'm just, I just am so grateful for the people that cared enough about me to pass these things along, and now it's my job to pass them on. And I've caught myself, you know, slipping and sliding and bending the rules a little bit, you know, and I get ticked off if they don't come and greet me when they see me at a meeting. And I'm going, did you tell them and that's what you expected them to do? And I think as a sponsor, I do have to tell people what I expect them to do. Because if they're not willing to go to any lengths, I can't care more about their sobriety than they do. And that was very clear to me from my sponsor. And um, now back to Ben. <laughs> now that I had some time left, we'll go back to Ben. And uh, when I got to Ben, I didn't quite know what to do with myself. I, have, I, am, I mean, I have no children, I have no pets, I have no husband. And I have a condo and I have a car and I have all this beauty around me. And... Um, so fortunately, I met some very friendly faces in Alcoholics Anonymous that liked to hike. And we had one guy that organized us so well. We'd always meet at his place. And I'll tell you, since he moved away, we haven't been hiking at all or snowshoeing. He's a great loss to us. And uh, But he really kind of got me integrated in some healthy Alco Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, the first Christmas after my husband died, I went to Hawaii. I didn't even deal with, with uh, the holidays. The second Christmas, I was a mess. I just was falling apart. I had gotten a job, and things weren't going well there. Because uh, of the job, I wasn't getting in my exercise, and I felt bad there. Then um, a friend um, in Alcoholics Anonymous had a pre-Christmas Eve party, December 23rd. Went up with my girlfriend, and I got a flat tire. Now, with that flat tire, my whole world fell apart. I started on a crying jag, December 23rd that probably didn't get over till December 27th. And I was on the phone constantly with my sponsor. We were going to get to the bottom of it. So I was doing so many, so much column work, you wouldn't even believe it. And so what had come up, and it had come up very briefly in my fourth step when I was telling her, but what we willed it down to was false pride. Afraid, 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 and yet ego, ego, ego. And fear that was conspiring with pride, and I was just about down and out. So we started on the solution, of course, once we identified the problem. And she would tell me, I don't care if your boss tells you three times. If you don't understand it the third time, you have to go back and do it again. And I said, but it was true. I wasn't, I was so busy in my head trying to figure out how I was going to carry out her assignment. I never heard what the assignment was. And that's the way my brain thinks. Fast forward. And then I'm lost. What happened to the directions? So this false pride thing has been huge for me. And it just shows me that, you know, it's like 
These character defects, they some go away. God doesn't think I need some of them, so he takes them. The other ones, like my sponsor instructed me, I figure out the nature of the defect, and I have to act as it's, it's removed and practice the opposite of it. And that was really, really hard for me, this acting as if, believing that something wasn't there when I felt in my heart it was still there. So we did that again. She said, you know, just practice. Practice with me. Ask me to go back and ask me to give, give you some instructions. You know, and it's really true. Through this pain, I had such tremendous growth. And, you know, in here. Um, I felt like I was becoming a grown-up and being responsible one more time. And it was, you know, it, it was such a gift to be able to work that through with my sponsor. And, you know, I was still working for that woman. And then 9-11 happened. And I started going, what in the world? You know, I don't know that this is where I'm supposed to be. I know, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a purpose today. Stay sober. Help another alcoholic. My main anthem all along has been trust God, clean house, work with others. You know, that's what I continue to do. But I thought, don't know about this employment thing. So I gave my two-week notice, and I left with notice. And I left in a dignified manner. I even went back and, and um, hit shit when someone was on vacation. And there's this opportunity that appeared in the paper right before I got this job. And uh, my friend Jane and Ben had, when I was looking for this job, she said, you just have to go through the action. Take the action, answer those ads, send out the resume, and then leave the results to God. And you will be amazed because the job you're applying for is probably not the job you're going to get. And she was true. It was true. She was right. So one more time, here I am. Oh, my God, now I'm going to have to look for another J-O-B. And I happened to look in the paper and just, I've been thinking about this opportunity uh, prior to taking this position, and it was court-appointed special advocate for children, and they were just going to start their training program a week after I was done. And it's a very intense, and, and it's like a six-week intense program of, of training. And so, you know, one more time, there it was. God closed a door, and he opened another door. And it's something that I just... You know, I have no children, but I think I can be a good advocate for children. I was a kid once, but I went through some trials and tribulations at home. Um, I certainly know the disease of alcoholism and the effects it can have on people. And if there's any, you know, I'm the voice of the child in court. But I get to interface with all the different agencies and, you know, do anything I can help that kiddo so maybe, you know, his life can be spared or bettered in some way. And that was just something, it was just a gift from God. And then I thought, okay, you know, that time went on, and um, January's coming, and it's like i got to get a J-O-B. And so a job, an offer was presented to me in something that I never thought I'd even, you know, be doing. It's something that certainly pertains to me, but I didn't know that I'd be doing that um, and getting paid for it. And it's essentially something that's helping others, and it's, you know, coming up with solutions and ways to get to the solution. It's like sponsoring. It really, truly is, and I've been very, very blessed. And it was about shortly, right after my big crash, the January of 19 or 2000, whatever it was. And, you know, I just thought, you know, I just, I got to start being a human being again. And I just start, you know, taking risks and doing what I don't want to do, walking through fear. And so one of my, I call her my, her my relationship sponsor because she has the qualifications for it. And uh, she's really one of my sobriety sisters. And so she's going, you know, Celine, you have to learn how to flirt now. You Come on, you got to get with it. you got to learn how to, I don't know how to do that. I've been married for 23 years. She said, trust me, just do it like, you know. So we rehearsed flirting a little bit. And, 
And there was no way. I just, no way. I haven't dated sober in my life. I mean, anyway, so we, we talked a little bit about that, and I just was going, oh, well, what the heck, you know. And then there was this gentleman, and I'd seen him, and I was very afraid of him. And um, and uh, we had some intergroup things going, and he kept asking us for coffee, and I kept saying no. And so um, finally one night he said, do you want to have dinner? And I said, I'm going to get this over with. I'm going to have dinner with this guy. So we started talking and talking, and, and uh, you know, he had lost a wife some time ago, and he, he agreed with me. He said, yeah, you're not ready for a relationship yet. So I said, oh. Well, now he's got the message. So some time goes by, and then one day he picks it up. Picks, I pick up the phone, and it's him, and he said, you know, I have lots of friends in Alcoholics Anonymous and outside, but I really would like to date you. Um, he went, okay. Um, how about, and he proposed a date, and I said, let me get back to you, something I've been taught I can say in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, I, you know, I did a little bit of, you know, thinking about it, and I said, you know, you know what you're going to get by not going. You don't know what you're going to get by going. And so I just said, okay, fine. You know, I suited up and showed up. And, you know, before I said, you know, God, this is your date, whatever you want. And, you know, this man had was so generous and respectful enough to tell me what his motives were right from the beginning that I really, really trusted and respected that. And so, you know, a little rocky beginning and, you know, and I didn't know how to date. And all I could think of is be honest and cause no harm to him or to me. And I don't know how to do that. It never would have occurred to me. So, you know, the the second date, you know, became now, it's two years later. And we're dating. We have a wonderful relationship. You know, he's a very kind and gentle man. And I never thought that I would know another relationship. I just thought that, you know, I had, you had yours, that's it. Don't get any more. But I've really learned, and I've, um, Learned so much about being in relationships, and it is a two-way street, and it's compromise. But above all, it's respect, and I do respect the person that I'm dating and with, and you know, and he respects me, so he tells me, and I believe him because he treats me respectfully. And you know, you can dream um, impossible dreams in these rooms, and people will help you achieve them and attain them. And I know that you know each and every one of um, of us in this room are proof that it does work. So, you know, please, 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 you know, don't leave before the miracle. And before my sponsor went on her trek um, on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was really worried and concerned for her. She was going from Mexico to Canada, and she did come off trail and spend some time with me when she got up to bed. But I was really, really worried about her. And she said, you know, Celine, the will of God will never take me where the grace of God will not protect me. And this, I think, is God's will for me. And I hope it's um, God's will for me that I stay sober another day and for you too. And I want to thank you all for being here and being part of my sobriety. And it's such a joy to be in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.